0: Not long ago, I sat down with a friend who's had an incredible 20-plus year career working in journalism. He's looking to change careers because journalism isn't paying the bills for him. And the irony here is that actually I was going to ask his advice on how to grow my reach as a technology columnist. He told me that every publication he could think of had been cut back to the bone. And he didn't know how much longer things could go on like this. How did media go from center stage to complete collapse in less than a billion seconds? And what is that telling us about where we're headed over the next billion seconds? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. But does that future contain news publications? What's happened to the news? On our next two episodes, we cut to the core of this sudden and unexpected transformation. News has melted away under the onslaught of the smartphone. But what's replacing it? learning what's true and what's real and what's going to last on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Last time he was with us, Rob Tersik took us through the hidden landscape of internet advertising. Who collects and who controls your personal data? This isn't just you know Yahoo or Google or... Or uh, Facebook or anyone. No,
1: it's, in, it's the, the data scrapers, uh, these, these companies that aggregate data and resell it. They're kind of the scary companies because most people are unaware of them. And we don't really know what they're doing with their data. We don't know who they're selling it to. And this is sort of an issue. If you care about this issue, uh, I think it's unavoidable that on a two-way network, your data is going to be recorded because we can do that. That actually helps us make better content. It helps us serve people more more effectively. Um, So in a way, that works for us. The issue is when they resell your data, you lose control. Already you don't have any idea what data is being captured but this idea that your data can be resold to some other parties and resold and resold and resold. And so you end up with a situation like the one we have with Equifax. Here's an organization we never asked to track us. They track our, our credit worthiness, whatever that means. Yeah. But they also track our health and they track our insurance. They track a lot of other features about our lives, uh, the cars that we have, where we live, what zip code we're in and so forth. They track all this information and now they're supplementing that with as much other data that they can buy from these data aggregators. And so they have a very rich profile. When they spill your data on the internet, they're
0: literally spilling everything up to and including your government issued ID. We had that conversation before we learned that Facebook and Cambridge Analytica had weaponized the profile data of 55 million users for political purposes. The business side of that massive data collection sees Facebook and Google siphoning advertising dollars away from publishers and toward themselves. $20 billion a year that's no longer available to fund journalism. Journalism was never really hugely profitable. But it made enough to keep the lights on, and all of that has vanished. A few years back, a book came out that explained all of this in detail, how the digital touch makes everything solid melt into air. Vaporized paints a picture of the next billion seconds, a world where software makes the rules, and if you ain't soft, you won't win. The author of that book has already been a guest on this show. Rob Tersik. welcome back to The Next Billion Seconds. Hello, Mark. It's good to be back. Okay, so what is the central thesis
1: of Vaporized? The central point of Vaporized is that anything that can be replaced by software will be, and that includes physical things. If you think about your smartphone, in the past 10 years, it's absorbed the functionality of literally dozens and dozens of objects that we used to pay money for. Things like um, um, uh, digital cameras, uh, DVD player, um, but also media products um, like newspapers, books, magazines. TV shows, and so forth. So the mobile phone's absorbing all this functionality, replacing it with software. The companies that manufacture physical goods, whether those are newspapers or DVDs or consumer electronics products, have experienced massive declines in sales. So those industries have collapsed as the mobile and internet industries have absorbed that functionality. They've actually also stolen the revenue from those old businesses.
0: And you you think about Kodak, which actually just completely went into bankruptcy, what was Mm -hmm. it, about three years ago at this point, because... Not not only did they really not make the transition to digital photography, but then when the smartphone came around, even the market for digital photography had vaporized.
1: That's exactly right. And the irony of the Kodak story, of course, is that they had many of the patents on digital technologies. They just couldn't commit as an organization to focusing on that. I, I make it sound easy. It's a very difficult decision.
0: And for 20 years, we've seen many companies miss that curve. Okay, so we have this idea that software is is touching everything and it's it's reducing it it's it and it's even reducing the physical processes in our world. But I, I guess we never really thought of publishing and news as things that would be eaten by software in this way. What have we seen
1: happening? Well, you know one one of the challenges any country a company has, any company that makes a physical product they tend to be a little bit obsessive about the physical product itself. So if you think about the news, what is the news? A newspaper is a bundle of stories and articles and advertising um, put together in physical form, you know, printed on sheets of paper. Anybody in the journalism industry who worked there, you know, pre-1980s loves ink. They love paper. They're committed to it. They love the idea of opening the New York Times and getting ink on their fingers every morning over coffee. That's a tradition and, and a habit that won't die easily. Um, so what happened was that we had this notion that the, the information content that was bundled together in a newspaper had to be encoded in physical form on a piece of paper or, you know, in the case of a TV show on a DVD or some kind of disc, um, with the vaporized process, what happens is the information content is freed from its physical form. We don't need the physical form. And if you think about it, the newspaper as a delivery mechanism is actually kind of a stupid way to deliver the news, right? Because it's this, you know, heavy, Inky paper thing that you read and you discard of—it's it. kind of environmentally
0: unfriendly. And you have to build this entire distribution network. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a printing plant. You then have to have trucks that deliver it to the newsstands. You have paper boys. I was a paper
1: boy. Yes, yeah, so I was a paper boy. Right. This is the
0: thing because you actually have to deliver these things. Yeah. So when the when the paper gets vaporized,
1: that entire supply chain gets vaporized all the way back to the company that's cutting down the lumber and making milling it into paper. Yeah, So the vaporized process unleashes uh, it. It unlocks a lot of value in the content, but it also literally destroys the value of the physical product. And if a consumer can get the same value from a dematerialized object or dematerialized service, and they don't need to buy or carry or store or throw out a physical thing, you're going to do that, as long as it's better. Think about maps. The best example, I think, is the map, right? So initially, mobile maps weren't that good. Back in the days of, um, you know, the
0: early days of 2G networks. But this is, again, we're talking about a time that was really only 10, 11, 12 years ago. That's, right. That's exactly <laughs> right. Well, and, and you see what happens is as soon as you get a digital map
1: that works well, you know, and take Google Maps, I think is the best example. Once you get a digital map that really works well,
0: you, you never go back to that physical map. So there was a moment. uh, So the Nokia N95 is immediately before the iPhone, but it was the first kind of quasi-smartphone. Not as nice as an iPhone, but close. And I remember being here in Sydney in a neighborhood that I'd never been to before and being lost and opening up the Maps app and suddenly realizing not only did I know where I was, I would never be lost again. That's right. And for a generation
1: that's grown up with smartphones, they're never going to get in the habit of getting lost in a foreign city. They'll just expect to have that information at their fingertips. So the mobile phone isn't just destroying old businesses and changing old habits. A new generation is growing up that will never have the habits of the past. So we come to the newspaper business. This is a fatal
0: combination of changes. So we have now the fact that there's this departure from paper, but there's also this departure from the rituals associated with that. That's exactly right. And if you look at the United States, uh, you know, just
1: a different example. Uh, the retail business in the United States is going through a massive transformation. And by many measures, we're overbuilt. We have too many malls, too many shopping centers, and so forth. So in, in general, they believe that's got to shrink. And last year, we saw the worst decline in the retail business since the 2008 financial crisis. Ten major chains went out of business. 10,000 shops were closed. 100,000 or more employees were laid off. So that's a massive... So Toys R Us is one of them. There's yes. the, any number of them. Any number of them. And um, you know, these were familiar stores that people shopped at. Not only are we no longer going to those stores to shop, and actually, you might argue, no longer are we going to shopping malls. Right, that habit has also gone away. We also don't need the things that were sold there. So the implications are bigger than just a hit on retail. It's also the products that, that were on the shelves and the entire supply chain, the entire physical supply chain. You know, say a factory in Asia, someplace, and a port, and a you know a ship, and um, and a logistics center, and a truck, and a warehouse. None of that is needed. All that's been replaced by purely digital supply chain. And the companies that dominate those digital supply chains are the usual suspects, Uh, you know, Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and so forth. These companies have emerged as the most valuable companies in the world. And if you look at the growth of these companies since 2006, the year before the iPhone came out, these companies came out of nowhere. In 2006, the only company that was in the top 10 largest companies in the world were Microsoft as uh, ranked number three. Um, since that time, Microsoft's held on to that number three spot, but Apple's emerged as the most valuable company in the world, followed by Alphabet. And now uh, suddenly in the last two months, Amazon has closed in and is poised to, it's got the momentum to, yeah, to get bigger, maybe the first trillion dollar corporation. Right,
0: and I think actually right now it's pretty much Apple and Amazon sort of fighting it out for the top spot there. And it is really interesting because both of them are selling you something physical, right? Apple is selling you software, but really what they make their money off of is the fact that they're making 100 million iPhones every year. Well, it's a really
1: good point. So each, uh, let me let me go back to those, those five big giant companies, and we could include a couple Chinese companies there. Um, it's true, Apple's a hardware company, and sometimes when I talk about this, people will challenge me on that. What most people don't realize is that Apple's fastest growing revenue line for the last seven years has been software products. It has the most momentum. Tim Cook's made it clear. He expects in the next two years that software sales, what they call services, uh, will emerge as about half of their revenue. So Apple Music yeah, and exactly iCloud right. and all of that stuff. Yeah, That's exactly right. So it's iCloud. It's um, any kind of content that you would download from iTunes, uh, any kind of app that you might purchase in the App Store, software that they sell directly, you know, Final Cut Pro and so forth. So they bundle all that together into something called services, and the cloud is in there as well. Um, So that revenue line's been growing. Now, it's small relative to handset sales. But what you have to understand about a company like Apple is that they control the full stack of the technologies, right? So you've got um, the components and the piece of hardware that you're purchasing, the operating system on top of that, then the app store, access to the app store, the monetization. Uh, All of that stack is their kind of their new value bundle. So a minute ago, I talked about the old value bundle, which was maybe a physical newspaper, right? Printed on paper, delivered by a truck to some newsstand. And inside of it, all the content and the reporting and so forth, and the advertising on top of that. Uh, that's the old bundle. That's been unbundled and disassembled, and that paper's gone away. The new bundle uh, consists of the the phone itself, the hardware, the operating system, the app store, the content in the app store that you can purchase, and most importantly, the billing mechanism or the advertising. Okay, <laughs> right? Very important because here's where we get to a crucial dis- distinction. Each of these companies has a different strategy on monetization. So. Apple takes their profit margin on hardware. You could say that the content subsidizes the hardware, which is shocking for anybody in the media business to even contemplate that we're doing content subsidies for hardware. But that's exactly what is happening in Apple's case. Apple because tries, they want you to buy their hardware,
0: so it's making, they're making it really easy for you to have great content on the hardware. Precisely. Apple doesn't need to make
1: money on content. They do take a 30% cut on the stuff in the, that's sold in the App Store, but that's not where they're driving their profit margin. But then contrast that to Google. Google also makes hardware. But that's not their primary business. They make reference implementations so that a bunch of Asian companies can learn how to build the proper you know, version of their Android phone. They also make an operating system, but they don't make money on that. That's an open source operating system. So where Google makes their money is further up that value stack in the advertising and of course, for Google, it makes sense to drive down the cost and commoditize the hardware because every additional
0: user on the Internet drives their business model. Right, because the, every user is basically being monitored all the time to feed more data into Google, to that, make do, Google better at being able to deliver ads and exactly. all the other things. That's
1: exactly right. So even if you're a person who's using the Internet and you're not even on a you know an Android phone, it doesn't matter because Google's still getting the benefit of learning from your activity. And by the way, you know, Bob Metcalf told us this 40 years ago. So this is not a new idea. This is Metcalf's law.
0: Right. So Bob Metcalf is the person who invented Ethernet. And if right. you've ever used a wired connection to a computer, that Bob Metcalf invented back in the 1970s. And he predicted. He said that
1: every additional user on the Internet uh, adds more value. Or it's, sorry, it's a network because he was talking about networking. Every additional user in a network increases the value of the network for all other users. And he expressed it as uh, the square. So the, net, the value of the network is the square of the number of users. But it doesn't matter like if you're connected to that additional person. That's not what he's saying. It's not like it's a direct connection to you that's valuable. It's just the fact that more and more people are connected to the network. What we're seeing on the Internet now with billions of people. And it's connected. now
0: four billion, according to Mary Meeker, right? We've just passed the halfway point, four billion people.
1: So with four billion people on the Internet, you're getting all that value. Now, I'm, I'm taking pains to express this because a lot of times when I tell people we're vaporizing books or we're vaporizing cars or we're vaporizing retail, you know, we're re- replacing those things with information people push back and they'll say, do you mean we're destroying the value in cars or we're destroying the value in books? They don't seem to understand Metcalfe's law. So I have to explain this sometimes because the network is a value multiplier. It's not a value destroyer. So the companies that understand network technologies and the companies that are driving these networks, this is why their value is increasing so fast because they're the beneficiaries
0: of that doubling and doubling that Metcalf described. So they're sitting, basically, they've put themselves inside that amplifiers. You know, that $4 billion, if it's $4 billion squared, right, that's $16 to something on that order. It's a very large number. It's a very large number. And so that's
1: why Wall Street investors are valuing
0: those companies so highly,
1: right? People think there's a tech bubble. Sometimes you'll read about that. People worry that all these tech stocks are overpriced. I don't think that's what's happening. I think investors understand Metcalf's law. They might not understand it explicitly but they get it intuitively they understand that these are the companies that are driving cloud computing dematerialization software as a service and you can think of a business like alphabet you know alphabet's the holding company where google is the one side of the, the part the side of the business that makes money and then all of the other businesses that <laughs> are don't the, make pet money, projects. the pet projects you can think of google as a very elaborate mechanism for dismantling businesses from the 19th century and the 20th
0: century and turning them into fertilizer for 20th century businesses. All right, so now that brings us sort of full circle into what's happening with news, because we saw this, I think, really first people started to see this with what Google called Google News, where it would basically just sort of take the headlines off of all of the websites that were all being indexed by Google and digesting them to you. When you said, "Okay, let me find out what's going on with Facebook today or what's going on in Iran today, and it would just bring you this list.
1: Yeah, literally, Google has been in the habit of devouring old businesses, literally leveraging the investment those companies made in generating original content. And Google argues that they're making it more discoverable, that they're making it more possible for people to find that information and read it. But what they're really doing is skimming attention off the top. So those companies have invested, the news gathering organizations have invested massive amounts of money in writing quality journalism. Google leverages that to drive their advertising business. And they control something on the order of 77% of advertising on the web and in mobile. So they're the primary beneficiaries of that process.
0: And about 90% of the search on web and in mobile, exactly. So you're talking about you're going to find the news through Google because that's the way we're all doing it. And the ad sales that are surrounding anything that's happening on the web are probably also going through Google. So there's sort of a coming and going equation.
1: Yeah. I mean, in the past, let's say we we're in the news business. Um... If you published an article and I tried to copy that article and put it in my newspaper, you'd sue me and you'd be right. Even if I stole your headline, you could sue me and you'd be right. I don't understand how that changed in the world of the Internet. Somehow Google has managed this remarkable trick of convincing
0: governments and courts that they're not doing the exact same thing in the digital domain. All right. So now that that has happened and now that Google is sitting there on top of this giant amplifier of four billion people all using the Internet to find their, their news, We've been seeing, I guess, that from that position, Google has been able to siphon off now. And this is the actual way it's happened. Google has been able to siphon off a lot of the advertising revenue that the newspapers were using, including what they used to call the rivers of gold, right? Which were the car ads, the real estate ads, and what was the third one? The classified ads. Classified ads. And also, you know, think about new, uh, if you were opening a movie when I worked at Sony, we used to always do ad,
1: huge full-page ad campaigns, and that, that, that's all over now. Nobody spends that kind of money on a newspaper anymore. Right, because why would you? Why would you? So you can see what happens. This process of unbundling means... Uh, a new company. Let's you know we're using the example of Google, but we could reference any of the companies we talked about. They identify something value and valuable in that bundle, and they can replicate it in software and deliver it more efficiently, which is you know faster, better, more easy to discover, but also cheaper. Right? That's the whole point of the digital process. Um, by doing that, they pull out a key ingredient of that old bundle. Once you pull that key ingredient out, let's say classified ads is a good example, which left the newspaper with less income, therefore they had to cut back. And we've seen this happen, not just with newspapers, but every news gathering organization over the last 20 years has slashed the the newsroom. They've slashed the fact checkers. They've slashed the writers, they've slashed the editorial budget. So they've cut back on, on not just news gathering, but also the editing and the writing, the creation of quality journalism. So what they've done is they've had to degrade the product because they no longer have the ad revenue to support it. But that's a downward spiral. The more you degrade the product, the more you lose subscribers and you lose readers, which means fewer advertisers, which means you have to cut the newsroom again, which further degrades the product and thereby continues that cycle
0: down. And if you've been reduced to effectively what's just a single line in a Google search that's trying to bring someone to read your article and there's half a dozen other ones and they're all just kind of the same thing now because you you can no longer distinguish yourself by quality because the quality has been vaporized away. The money for that has been vaporized away. Then we are starting, and this is the world where we kind of see ourselves living in now, where that Google search is now returning stuff that's just kind of useful, kind of good, kind of researched. Well, now,
1: yeah, and the situation we're in now is anybody with a desire to get attention, to gain attention, who understands how Google works, can hire experts to game the search engine and drive that traffic. So we have people who are genuinely interested in the news, but they can be diverted by a clickbait headline to land on a page that really isn't going to satisfy them. Google does nothing to improve this. They say they do, but honestly, that process has gotten worse. We've all experienced it, the number of clickbait articles. I'd argue that Facebook has made it even worse. Uh, so people are now sharing articles that they they have to know are not real, um, but they share them because they're not good at making a debate. They're not very persuasive themselves. They're not able to have kind of a civilized discourse with people who disagree with them. So instead, they just haul in a link bait headline that that will uh, you know kind of make your point for them, I guess. So this pernicious process has done two things. It's commoditized quality news and driven it down to the level of just junk news. And there's tons of junk news out there. And other players have entered who want to promote more junk news, make it harder and harder and harder to find the good quality stuff. I don't think these new Internet discovery platforms have done a very good job of promoting and helping find quality news. Um, They always talk about efficiency. So they're trying to match you with the news that's right for you. But there's there's an agenda behind that that I don't think is the same as quality news. What we've got ultimately then is fragmentation, fragmentation of attention and fragmentation of consensus. Uh, in the past there were credible news organizations that invested a lot in quality journalism. Today you can quibble with the quality of the journalism that's being done, but some of those organizations still exist and they're doing their best to maintain it, but it's very difficult because their revenue has been clobbered. Meanwhile, most people have migrated over to digital media where those old norms don't exist. The new, the new platforms, they're not interested in quality. In fact, they say quality is in the eye of the beholder. They're just interested in attention. Yep, exactly. Making connections as fast as they possibly can. And of course, that's a competitive space, so they're focused mostly on switching you quickly to whatever it is you click on. That feels like quality to people who are searching. Um, This is a pernicious process because it's ripe for being gamed, and it brings us to a point where our news ecosystem has been polluted. It's been degraded to a point
0: where democracy is in jeopardy. And on that note... We're going to take a break and then we'll be back with Rob Tercik on the next billion seconds. And we're back talking to Rob Tercik. Rob, there's this wonderful quote. It's from Orwell's 1984. He who controls the past controls the present. He who controls the present controls the future. And so if we're talking now about control of news, news is the way we understand both the present and the past. And if that's changing, then we're starting to change the rules here, aren't we? That's exactly
1: right. Think of democracy as an operating system for a country. And if um, you have an operating system, you need an input. In Mm -hmm. democracy, it's going to be good information, right? So we need a free and independent press. In the United States, this is referenced in the Constitution. And so it's an important aspect of how the United States works. There's no question that this rapid change to our information economy has created opportunities for people who are the enemies of democracy, people who want to disrupt the democracy. When I wrote Vaporized, I didn't have enough information at the time, because I wrote in 2014, 2015, I didn't have enough information at the time to consider what a vaporized government would look like or what vaporized politics would look like. Now, of course, as soon as the book came out, we had the 2016 election, and it became very evident what the effects of the dematerialization would be and the degradation of our news economy, uh, so we start to see the results of that—the quote-unquote fake news. Yeah, the explosion of fake news, which is a subset of something that we should call information warfare. And we should be really clear what this is. We are now living in Cold War 3.0, and it's happening in our computers and it's happening in our homes. Most people are unaware of it. Some people are aware of it and they resist it, they deny it. But I want to take a second to talk a bit about that. So you use that Orwell quote, um, and I agree with that quote about you know, controls—the present controls the future. I was walking around in Istanbul a couple of years ago with some friends who are Turkish and we were in the old part of town, Sultan Ahmet, which has a lot of Roman monuments and ruins and so forth. And so I was pointing out different things, you know, here's where they used to race the chariots here, are these columns of taking photographs. And after a while, one of my Turkish friends said to me, how do you know all this stuff? How do you know about all these things? And I said, well, cause it's fascinating history. And this is where kind of like the Roman empire reached its zenith and then collapsed. And so, you know, You can't see as much of this stuff in Rome anymore, but you can see tons of it. It's very evident. It's much more recent. So it's here. And he said, you know, it's funny when we were raised, we didn't learn about any of this in school. And I said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? He said, well, for us, it's Turkish history and Turkish history begins with Mehmet the Conqueror in 1452, right? So or 53, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, Mehmet the Conqueror. So like they start the clock there. And of course, they have the obligatory chapter about the native people who were here before um, the Roman Empire. Yeah, but it's not like the core of their history because their narrative begins with conquest and the new, you know, the Turkic people moving in from the east into uh, in, into Anatolia and taking over Istanbul. And so his conception of history then starts in 1450. And I thought, gosh, that's amazing. It's incredible how this government can control people. And then I thought, well, I guess every school is somewhat, you know, the history curriculum is a little bit politicized and so forth. Well, all this came rushing back to me because when... um when I come to Australia, there's this wonderful habit people have here, this, this custom of acknowledging the traditional peoples. Who've the welcome here. to country. Exactly. And I think, I think this is neat. Anyone who's a visitor who's not from Australia, it's always quite striking when you come to an event in Australia and you see government officials, event organizers, even a comedian You know, will, will stand there and quite seriously do this welcome to country. And it's a neat acknowledgement. And I'm sure if you're a member of the Aboriginal people, that's probably not sufficient, but at least it's an acknowledgement. At least it's something. And it causes everybody to be mindful of the fact that there was a population with a history that lived here before. We don't do that in the United States. Now, they do do something like that in Canada. That's fairly recent, and they don't do it as consistently as you do it here in Australia. But it would be politically impossible to do this in the United States. There'd be such outrage and furor and pushback. I don't know if that's because we're insecure about our history or our place in history or whatever it might be. Things that we're not taught in the United States are um, much about the history of the peoples that lived for tens of thousands of years in North America before the colonies, before American colonies. Of course, we always have that obligatory chapter where they talk a little bit about you know Native cultures or Indian cultures or First Nations, Um, but it's a short chapter, and it makes it all sound like it was one group of people or just a few different tribes, and we're never told about the sophistication of those tribes. We're also not told about... Effectively, the systematized germ warfare that was used to wipe those people out. Well, no, nobody wants their national narrative to be based on genocide, so I can understand why that's airbrushed out of the story. But I bring that up because I think it's really important to understand that the way we talk about history and the way we talk about the present is a political narrative. In other words, the information that's disseminated and understood by people and helps them make political decisions in the present is informed by that narrative. It's informed by our self-conception of what we are in the democracy. And every government takes some effort to kind of control that narrative, maybe sanitize that narrative if necessary. Um, in other words, you're being manipulated in an information society. So that's my starting point for talking a little bit about information warfare. Um, I think it's really important for us to understand that this is not a new process. It's been a part of the Western story. And I was
0: going to say the Romans were very good at propaganda themselves. That's
1: exactly right. Um, in, in 2011, I was doing a lot with, um, social media. I was running this week in social media for our friend, Jason Calcanis. And I was quite interested in the Arab Spring and all these movements that were popping up in North Africa, um, uh, these liberation movements. They were fueled by social media. People called them the Twitter revolution. Now what's interesting is that they all failed with the exception maybe of Tunisia. Most of them were not successful and some of them went dangerously sideways like Libya and also ultimately Syria. Um, Moreover, governments learned quickly that these new information tools that allowed people to organize and create this kind of leaderless, autonomous, self-organizing political force, they understood that to be a dangerous threat to the stability of their existing governments. Uh, It was an unambiguous threat, even though it was leaderless. And so we saw efforts like, you know, Egypt tried to shut down Twitter or turn off the Internet. And then you saw grassroots effort to create some sort of mesh network to reconnect people to the Internet. All these those were political actions like make no mistake about it. Access to the Internet became politicized. Those groups weren't the only ones that paid attention. A small group of remnant fighters left over from the Iraq war, the Gulf War, reorganized in Syria. And they started to learn how to use social media like pros. And they were fantastic. And They were known as ISIS. And they started to post these absolutely horrifying videos of people being beheaded um, and calls to people to join their Islamic revolution. And they were incredibly effective. What a lot of people don't know is that there were ISIS groups in Indonesia, ISIS groups in Malaysia, all over the world, Philippines and so forth. This was not limited to the Middle East. Uh, like all things digital, it's global in nature and also highly local. Uh, the information that you got In English was very different from the information that we published in another language, like Arabic. So they also understood how to speak to different audiences. They were masters at information warfare. It took the United States almost five years to figure out how to respond to this uh, social media attack or social media warfare. Uh, It was the principal way of organizing, the principal way of recruiting new new people to to the combat, to the jihad, if you will. Um, And it was a way of organizing resistance and telling an alternative narrative to anyone that was interested in maybe persuading more people to support them. I'm, I'm certainly not here to support ISIS. So don't get me wrong. No,
0: but what we see now is that there's a whole, I mean, ISIS is not the only alternative narrative that we right. have going these days. Yeah. What we're seeing now is this multiplication of all of these different narratives so that people can sort of dial in tune their own specific set of origin stories, beliefs, conspiracies, the way they think power is organized. That's right. It's
1: Exactly it. And so, it, it, in, the, in the absence, let's say the vacuum that was created by the demise of traditional news organizations and traditional news gathering and journalism, in that gap, lots of new players filled in. Those players have a different agenda. They don't necessarily have to make money. So, sometimes it's a guerrilla organization, sometimes it's a government, sometimes it's a company. Uh, so, one thing that's interesting to know is um, in the wake of the demise of traditional journalism, the number of professional PR executives relative to journalists is now four to one in Mm -hmm. the United States Mm -hmm. and on average they're paid about 30% more so if you're a former journalist looking for what you should do next go become a flack for the tobacco industry or the oil industry or some other industry and start to spread journalistic writing that isn't journalistic in nature but it kind of mimics journalism and can deceive people and write the right headline so that'll it show up in a Google search that's become a profession and it's a growing it's a massive and growing industry but most importantly are the governments so in 2013 the general chief of staff uh, of, the, of the Russian army with a great name, like a name from a James Bond thriller. His name is Valery Gerasimov. He gave a speech and wrote an article that was later translated by a political uh, writer named Mark Galliotti. And he labeled it, this guy Galliotti labeled it the Gerasimov Doctrine. It's important to know that this was never a doctrine that was expressed that way. What uh, Valery Gerasimov was observing was the Arab Spring and how the Arab Spring worked. And he noticed that um, some people had militarized or weaponized things like NGOs and humanitarian interventions could be used as a kind of pretext for political or even military objectives. So that was his observation. Uh, Grasmov wasn't talking about Russian policy. He was talking about the Arab Spring. But he was talking about information warfare, what they call sometimes asymmetric warfare, hybrid warfare, Um, sometimes nonlinear warfare, all these terms, if you search them, nonlinear warfare or uh, hybrid warfare, will give you all the results that you need to see. Now, this concept of the Gerasimov Doctrine is controversial, so I'm not here to tell you that this is like a Russian policy or a fact. In fact, what makes it so interesting is that it's entirely ambiguous and subject to interpretation.
0: And yet, what we now know from how Facebook was used during the 2016 presidential election cycle in America is that, in fact, news stories were being fed to both camps. That's right. Right. And left in a way to to get them manipulated in a particular way. So then, in fact, we actually did see this. And as far as anyone can tell, that was actually happening via Russia. Right. And so uh, there's always
1: this level of plausible deniability where it's not officially a Russian position. Uh, You know, Vladimir Putin can deny and actually with a certain amount of credibility, you can say, I don't know who these people are. Because it's a volunteer force. So it's not as if this is like a division of the Russian government that's doing it. Now, U.S. investigators are starting to point to people in government, in the intelligence services. So perhaps there's more to that part of the story that will unfold in the near future. But what Russia refers what Russian leaders refer to are political entrepreneurs. (laughs) That's a
0: great term. It's a
1: great term. These are people who seek to gain something, maybe prominence, maybe it's expertise, maybe a new position. Maybe they want to curry favor with someone in power. Maybe they want to get paid. Those might be oligarchs, they might be people in business, they might be think tanks, they might be think, think tanks, you know, Something uh, maybe a political force that's masquerading as a think tank, it might be a hacker, independent mover, movement altogether, uh, not connected directly to the government. That's why it's so hard to prove this stuff is happening. Um, in Russia, there's an assortment of different organizations that do that. They started to test this out early on, um, shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed, you started to see them attacking the Baltic states. Um, so, you know, the folks that have dealt with this the longest, I think, are the Estonians. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work there and travel there and in Finland, and they feel like they're constantly under assault, that their, um, information defenses are constantly being probed and tested just the way their military defenses are being probed and tested all the way through the Baltics. Um, and now you've got governments in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania that are more or less, um, Open to Russia. In other words, they've been successful with this information warfare in sort of shifting government to be a little bit more sympathetic. That might be pragmatic, or maybe you know, maybe maybe not. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe there's financing coming from there. Where they run into trouble uh, was uh, Ukraine. And So the Ukraine was the first place where we saw asymmetric warfare or non-linear warfare on a massive scale, where you know there were arguments on both sides about. Who shot down that airplane? Was it the Russians that shot down the airplane? Was it Ukraine shooting down and blaming the Russians? Was it a hoax from the CIA? I mean, it, the, the madness of the conspiracy theories um, makes it extremely difficult to understand that story, which was actually a factual story and it's a tragedy that it happened. But it's been politicized in a way and refracted through this crazy prism of different perspectives so that it gets harder and harder to distinguish what the actual truth is. And this is the key point. Once you weaponize the news and you fragment the news, you undercut the basis of consensus reality. You make it impossible for a democracy to function if they don't have good information to agree on. Have we vaporized reality? Is that what's going on here? I think we're on the brink of that. You know, Certainly, we vaporized warfare. And vaporized warfare means, and this is Gerasimov's point, we should invest less money in tanks and hardware and invest more money into software and you know these information warfare tactics. I think you could say that in the United States right now, is in information warfare, but most Americans aren't aware of it. Most Americans don't want to believe that that's the case. We don't like to think that we're under assault. We like to think that we're somehow, you know, this leader of the world and this freedom, independent nation and so forth, but we are under assault every single day. Um, Our news organizations are being attacked. Our intelligence organizations are being attacked. Core infrastructure is under attack. Our voting systems are under attack. Now, it's important to recognize, I'm not saying that necessarily the Russians manipulated our voting systems. They may or may not have done it, and and it's a little bit inconclusive at this stage. What they have unquestionably succeeded in is creating a shadow of doubt about the legitimacy of American elections. Once you introduce that element of doubt, you remove the basis for consensus, once you remove the basis for consensus, it doesn't matter who wins the election, because now the other party will say, well, the, the election was rigged. Uh, it, was, it was skewed in favor of. bribes were paid. Already you can see this with Trump. He's already telegraphing now that the Russians are going to hack the midterm elections that come this fall. He's already t- saying this publicly. What he's telegraphing is, don't believe the results. He's, it's a dog whistle message to his base to say, whatever the results are, even if we get a complete shellacking in November and we lose a lot of seats, which is probably likely to happen, he says, he's saying already, don't believe those results because they're probably going to be the result of a hacked election from the Russians. So he's managed, he's a brilliant manipulator of public opinion. He's managed to take this very credible information that we have. Every intelligence agency in the U.S. and our allies agrees that Russians interfered with U.S. elections. He's now taking that and he's turning, he's politicizing that to his own benefit, to sow
0: disinformation, distrust, discord, and disagreement. Okay. So here we are at this sort of cusp of reality vaporizing. And, you know, we just come out of the episodes that I did, The Last Days of Reality, which really talk about all of the other elements are in play here. We can sort of see things going on with this. What can we start to do to deflect, to defend, to reinforce some sort of consensus reality so that we don't end up sort of swirling down this drain of complete uncertainty about everything that's happening in the human social space. So we are in, we are in the battle right
1: now and we don't have a good plan. And the first problem is that we don't agree about a current situation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, investigation after investigation has yielded credible evidence of this interference. We have to agree that that's a fact if you can't agree on the facts, then you can't agree on what to do about those facts, today, unfortunately, for political reasons in the United States, one party simply refuses to accept facts. So once you have that problem, you've got a. a
0: but this isn't just. A, I mean, it isn't just a U.S. problem. I mean, it's it's certainly very amplified in the U.S., right? But it is happening everywhere because all of these same processes are in play around fragmentation and and and. And the way the political divide is, is being amplified because of this vaporization. So it seems like we could fix the U.S. and we still have things going on everywhere else. So how do we want to think maybe up a level, more systemically about that? Well, it, It's a challenging proposition because,
1: frankly, the gains to be made from playing the sport are much easier to get than, than stopping it or confronting it. So I, I'm, I'm talking a lot about Russia, but you could probably make the exact same case about the United States. And you can certainly make that case about China and the 50-cent army, which by every measure is much larger than the Russians. They have a bigger economy, They apparently a million people who will post fake information or manipulate social media streams on beha- in the service of the Chinese government. Um, and you'll see that happen every time there's an election in Taiwan, for instance, but it's not limited to that. So you're right, it's, it's uh, global in nature, it's geopolitical. Um, what we're seeing then is a reaction against the last 50 years of globalization, and a lot of the policies um, of uh international banking systems and the frankly the, you know the richest companies in the world uh there's a reaction against that you know there has been this long standing push against globalization but it was you know hippies throwing you know bottles in store windows in you know in cities like Seattle when the wf would come into town that's shifted now now that battle's happening on the internet and it's
0: where it's much more effective so does this mean that in some sense to bring this full circle These same companies that precipitated this vaporization have now managed to whip up exactly the thing that's going to end up checking their power. Because if we are ending up in this, you could call it balkanized, but you can definitely say post-globalist world, a Google and an Apple and an Amazon and an Alibaba in the same way, although Alibaba is a little different because it's closely aligned with the Chinese Communist Party they don't have the same benefit of scale. You don't have 4 billion people on the internet if everything gets fragmented and it's just a Turkish internet and it's a, just a Chinese internet and it's just an American internet. So well, have they sown the seeds for their own destruction?
1: Certainly Facebook has shot in itself right through the foot and they've done it on several occasions. Um, Zuckerberg seems to be tone deaf. Uh, he's in. He's been in denial about the scale of the problem and his responsibility for it. I think People are disgusted with Facebook, and I think he's quite stunned because he thought he built this novel mechanism for people to connect and grow a community. And What he didn't realize is that it could be weaponized, and it has been. It's going to be very hard for them to recover any kind of credibility. Uh, so there's a, there is pushback against those giant Internet giants. The problem is right now the gains to be had from undermining the existing system are so easy to get. It looks to me that a lot of the uh, institutions that were created carefully by brilliant diplomats... 50 or 70 years ago, are in the process of being dismantled
0: right now. Vaporized.
1: Yeah, I mean, or just, you know, we're trying to disrupt the EU. I don't we, someone's trying to disrupt the EU, trying to disrupt NATO, trying to disrupt global trade practices and so forth. If all that is dismantled and goes away, it puts us in this free-for-all state. And so you might wonder, who gains from that? Who are the people or the companies or the countries that benefit if the existing global order is dismantled? That's one thing to look at. Right. If you, you can consider, we could debate who those might be. Well, but, but
0: the, I think one way to answer that question is it's the people who can define the reality for the order that replaces a collapsed global
1: order. That's another group. Right. That that certainly is. That's a, that presents an opportunity for a new entrants to come in and, and play this. right? For political entrepreneurs. That's right. To come in. That's right. But if you want to start with you're know, you asking about solutions, the first thing to ask is who who benefits from this, and it's typically you know it's going to be organizations or governments that were disenfranchised by that previous world order. They have every reason in the world to try to dismantle it, and they will do so. Um, the second thing is that in a, in a Western democracy, at least where you know this is where the battlefield right now, is right now, um, not just Western democracies, any democracy, it's really important to expose the sources of the financing. Now, here's what's really interesting in the United States. The Republican Party, it's quite evident, has gotten a lot of donations from Russian oligarchs. And it turns out that one of their top-tier financiers, the Republican Party, is the NRA, the National Rifle Association, the pro-gun lobby. Well, it turns out they've also collected enormous amounts of money from Russian actors as well. Not necessarily state actors, but this is nonlinear warfare. It might be a Russian oligarch. And so recently, a Russian woman was arrested and accused of being a spy who was very close to the NRA. So This story is unfolding now. We don't know exactly how it's going to unfold. That's a matter for investigation that's currently proceeding. But it looks like they, these funding sources may have compromised the, the, the GOP, the, the Republican Party that's in power in all three branches of the U.S. government right now. That's a matter of deep concern. The solution for this particular problem is to expose those financial sources. They should be exposed, and uh, we should we should have complete transparency on who's funding political campaigns. It's against the law for any foreign party to finance an american um American election. If that has been the case, we need to understand that as a people. Now here's what's scary. The Republican Party in the United States is actually pushing legislation that will further
0: obscure the sources of those for those campaign financing programs. So this is a real matter for concern. And so now we're starting to hide behind these layers and these levels that make reality more and more invisible. If you're interested in this topic, you should search the name Vladislav
1: Surkov. And the last name is S-U-R-K-O-V. He is the architect of what they call nonlinear warfare. And he's written about this. Um, He was involved in what they call managed democracy, uh, working for Putin. Now he's in charge of foreign policy and strangely... He was moved into the foreign, foreign policy area right around the time when this misinformation campaign began to expand outside of Russian borders. Um, his concept is that war is everywhere. And what's most interesting about him is he's fascinated by performance art, and he's been a great promoter of conceptual art. His view is that this is some sort of art performance. I mean, it's, it's so abstract at that level. Anyway, check out
0: Vladislav Sukhov if you want to learn more. Rob, it has been another... Complete pleasure to have you on as a guest. Thank you for being on the next billion seconds. Thank you. In my role as a journalist, I recently interviewed the founders of a startup named Ovu. That's double O, double V, double letter U. Their goal is to take the 20 billion dollars that Facebook and Google have sucked out of news publishing, and in their words, they want to repatriate those funds. Now they're doing this. Wait for it. They're doing this by vaporizing what Google and Facebook do. They've developed a way to connect the folks writing journalism to the folks making video journalism in a way that ensures that those folks are the ones getting paid well for their work. And so effectively what they're doing is they're using software to fight software. It seems to be working. They're in 145 countries. Publishers are starting to see Uvu. As a new dawn, maybe for their business and maybe for a way to be able to pay for journalism, that's still very early days. But it's possible that this isn't the end of the story, that we're actually going to see a journalism that hasn't been vaporized beyond recognition. We'll be linking to Robert's website, including how you can buy your own copy of Vaporized. So be sure to look for that on our new website at nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation got you to thinking about what's enduring and what's turning into vapor? If so, we'd like to hear from you. So drop by our LinkedIn page. Send us a message on our website. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. On our next episode, well... It's a surprise. I don't want to give away too much, but we've used the theme from the most downloaded episode of Series 1 as a starting point and turned it into something that's even better. So keep listening for the next episodes of The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.